Okay. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again uh, to the third and uh, final lecture of um, Professor Paula Fredrickson's three Princeton Public Lectures on uh, sin, the early history of an idea. Welcome to all of you who have been with us uh, from the beginning, Tuesday evening and yesterday evening, and welcome to uh, those of you who are catching this lecture um, and not having been able to attend the first two. Um, this is a lecture in uh, the series of Princeton Public Lectures. It is uh, co-sponsored by uh, the Committee on Public Lectures of Princeton University and uh, Princeton University Press. Uh, my name is Fred Appel. I'm a senior editor for religion at uh, Princeton University Press, and uh, we're very pleased to be co-sponsors of this lecture and to be publishers of the book that will be forthcoming uh, uh, based upon uh, Professor Fredrickson's uh, lectures. Um, this um, is especially, uh, uh, this lecture is especially endowed lecture. It's called the um, Spencer Trask Lecture Series. And I've been asked to just um, say a few things about the Spencer Trask Lectures. Those of you who uh, have been here yesterday and the day before, uh, thank you for your indulgence. Uh, it's a um, lecture series that was founded in 1891 uh, with a gift of $10,000 from Mr. Spencer Trask, a Princeton graduate of the class of 1866. And the purpose of these lectures, um, to select lecturers who speak on the importance of the humanities. And it's been um, our pleasure to host Spencer Trask lecturers ever since. And... Uh, to introduce uh, our most recent Spencer Trask lecturer. It gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce to you uh, from the Department of History at Princeton University, Professor Peter Brown. Fred, Paula, everybody. A few days ago, I was in Trier, where if one's got one's chronology straight, St. Jerome could, the future St. Jerome could easily have met the future St. Martin of Tours, along with St. Martin's fellow officer, Ammianus Marcellinus, and they could indeed have thrown buns at the bears of the Emperor Valentinian, Innocence and Goldflake, when these bears were not satiated by delinquent tax collectors, tax uh, payers. Um, I say this because Paula, in her imagination, also has always mingled with the great. It is one of the most remarkable things about Paula Fredrickson's career as a scholar that she has never shied away from truly important and major figures. First of all, Augustine on Paul. Then Augustine and Paul. <laughs> then Paul on Paul. <laughs> then Paul on Jesus. Quite distinguished company altogether. What I think is even more impressive is the absolute royal dignity with which Paula herself has trod her way as a scholar around these great figures. 
What always strikes me is she has to a remarkable extent what Keats called negative capability. And I myself interpret this above all by an ability to really honestly say what the sources don't say. They are not sort of glued together by this sort of fish paste of wishful thinking and premature synthesis to which, alas, highly charged and profoundly underdocumented periods of history, such as the early church, are prone to. There is a cold, fresh air of truth around the buildings which Paula has raised, and therefore I think it is a great privilege for us, as well as a great pleasure for me as to a former long, long friend, colleague once, to welcome Paula and to hear from her once again about two great persons, Origen and Augustine, on sin. Paula Fredericks. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Super. Thank you, brave people, for braving the rain. Can you still hear me? Now you can? Yes. It might be this. Okay. When I was 19 and uh, an undergraduate, intending to go to law school, work for the end of the nation state, and uh, revolutionize American society, this was 1969, 1970, I met two personages that changed the trajectory of my life. One was Augustine, uh, because I read his book, The Confessions, and I worked on his political thought around the Donatist controversy. And the second personage I met was Peter Brown's Augustine, because my teacher suggested I look at a new biography that had just come out. It might help me think about my assignment. And I have been um, having Peter Brown's biography of Augustine and Augustine's confessions as my formative intellectual companions from the, the age of 19 until the age I am now, which is 56. So thank you, Peter. It's been excellent company. Um, tonight we are going to conclude our uh, helicopter tour of different ideas in the Mediterranean about sin and about how to deal with sin. I had defined sin as um, a kind of episode or activity that ruptures the relationship between the individual and God, Jewish literary traditions that are preserved in uh, the first five books, of the Bible spell out a lot of the conditions of uh, what keeping to a good path and not keeping to a good path are. And we looked at 
traditions of blood sacrifices and sacrificial protocols to see the different ways that late Second Temple Jews, such as Jesus and Paul and John the Baptist, might have used purification language and sacrificial language in order to formulate their ideas about repentance for sin in the face of their conviction that the kingdom of God was at hand. Yesterday, we looked at the cosmos, the universe, and put the map of the cosmos and that Hellenistic scientific architecture against the rhetorical binary opposites of Greco-Roman rhetoric and also the Greco-Roman rhetoric particularly available in Paul's letters and we traced how three major second century Christian theologians Valentinus, Marcion and Justin thought about the ideas of redemption and salvation and therefore how they conceptualize sin as what one is redeemed from by reading these letters in that cultural context. And we saw how all three of them, despite their very different perspectives on inspired texts and on um, the value and status of blood sacrifices, all three of them positioned themselves vis-a-vis what they took to be inspired and important revelation and revelatory texts by constructing an image of Jews and Judaism against which to construct their own ideal image of what it meant to be a real Christian. We're going to look at the next revolution in the circle by turning to the work of Origen of Alexandria. His dates are given in the first line of this evening's handout, and I'm going to be concentrating particularly on his book, on first principles, the Periarchon, it's an effort at, um, it's really a systematic theology, a true effort to rationally lay out in a coordinated way the principles of um, Christian theology in a way that explained text, time, redemption, um, free will. In order to have a concept of sin, how you make sense of the Bible, and how you make sense of the moral composition of God in the face of the problem of evil. Um, if you look at the next to his name in caps, this book has been reconstituted because it was um, put through a shredder when Augustine posthumously became a heretic in the 5th century, um, something that still irritates me no end. Um, but... He had, the work was in four books. The first one's on the nature of God, the second on the cosmos, the third on free will. The point being there that God cannot judge justly unless the moral agent whom he is judging was genuinely free to make a decision one way or the other. So free will is not only the linchpin of Origen's discussion of how human beings and all rational beings are constituted. It is also his first wall of defense of the justice and moral equity of God. So free will is a very important concept for him. And finally, the fourth book is on the Bible. You had a quote from that last night with the Bible having three layers. 
the, um, the flesh of the text, the soul of the text, and the spirit of the text, which replicated how he imagined um, the, the composition of the uh, rational being as well. Augustine, on the other hand, is born um, more than a century after Origen dies. He's a Latin speaker. He's in the West. And he's in a completely different political context. This is after the um, decision of Constantine to become the imperial patron of one Christian community and the imperial persecutor of the other Christian communities. And it's at a point where Augustine is a bishop, which is being a kind of late imperial political figure, as well as being an ecclesiastical Figure. He has resp- social responsibilities in a way that um, Origen could not possibly have imagined. Origen was, uh, in a sense, a lay professor of Christianity. And the, not only are they clearly different temperaments, but their historical context, of course, affects um, the freedom with which they can make the types of arguments they do. Before we go on to this, I want to thank the media people for finally uh, giving me access to some of the images I wanted to um, show you in the first lecture, so we'll use this as a way to visually kick off our third lecture instead. Could I have the image, please? This, uh, this is um, a photograph of the heel bone of a young man who's in his mid-20s. His name was Yohanan. And he, uh, he was crucified in the first century near Jerusalem. And uh, this uh, part of his body was, was found a few decades ago in Israel. It still has the nail through the heel bone because uh, when he was crucified, the nail hit a knot in the wood and bent. And so when they tried to remove uh, the nail from the body, it, it pulled out the the knot as well, and that's why we still have that. I'm, the reason I'm putting it to you is because it's such an amazing contrast to um, the next image, which is um, a 5th century image from Ravenna, a mosaic. Um, there, this is actually a kind of very condensed visual commentary on Orthodox, by which I mean majority culture, um, Christology, theological ways of conceiving of Christ. If you can see the letters, they're a little blurry in the book that this Roman soldier is holding up. Um, It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is a picture of the Christ of John's gospel. Um, as a beardless and beautiful young man, he is stepping on a lion and a snake. That's a reference to Psalm 90, uh, verse 13. You shall walk upon the asp and the basilic. You shall trample underfoot the lion and the dragon. So it's making several important theological claims. First of all, it's proclaiming one of the canonical gospels. It is presenting Jesus as an incarnate male, and it is uh, showing the relationship between the Old Testament and the understanding of who this figure is. And the fact that he uh, is portrayed as uh, a Roman military officer 
merges this figure nicely with ideas of the emperor, who was also a type of incarnate male god in Roman culture, and continued to be so and to receive cult, minus the blood sacrifices, for um, quite a few years after Constantine converted, or after, as Peter Brown has put it, after the conversion of Christianity um, in 312. And finally, you can see how this really is a symbol of the divine ruler, which goes back, going back to, all the way back to our chronologies in the first two handouts, something that is, again, the late fruit of the tremendous synthesis that uh, was brought to the Mediterranean by Alexander the Great. One of the um, consequences of Alexander's uh, success and something that his political heirs um, copied as well and ultimately came into Roman political traditions is the idea of the ruler as a god. So all of these images are nicely condensed in this uh, mosaic, which could not look more different from Yochanan's heelbone. The next image, this is the uh, picture of the temple I wanted to show you. Let me see if I can get it just a little bit bigger without getting it blurry. This is Herod's temple. Is that okay? Um, this is the, the wall around the um, perimeter of that uh, landfill mesa that Herod engineered. Is That whole uh, fence is the one, or the stoa are the ones that go almost nine-tenths of a mile around this area. And the largest courtyard, beginning with the, the royal portico, which is that slightly raised area in the foreground, um, is where the court of the Gentiles would be. And that's the court through which um, Jews going to offer sacrifices would, would cut through uh, to get to the other enclosed areas. And the sanctuary is in the middle. This is what I meant when I said that Herod's architecture was designed for heavy foot traffic. It's, uh, it's brilliantly engineered. There's, there's uh, a nice traffic flow in and out of, the, um, out of the temple. And it can accommodate a large number of people. This is a zodiac, and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to um, bring this to you is that the zodiac, as I invited you to think with the idea of the architecture of the cosmos as one of these ecumenical, scientific, and religious texts that people who thought with such things had in their minds, the zodiac is a part of this also. And um, as typically with a representation of the zodiac, the sun god, Helios, is in the middle, and he's uh, driving the chariots of the sun, and there are um, images of the zodiac symbols um, all around the perimeter. You can see the twins, and you can see the fish. Pisces. You might notice, those of you whose eyesight is better than mine, that these are Hebrew letters and not Greek ones. This mosaic zodiac with the sun god in the middle is from a synagogue floor in the Galilee and uh, the Beit Alpha synagogue. My point, again, is that this way of conceptualizing space 
and the the religious resonance that these conceptualizations of um, space had is something that is very much an ecumenical uh, kind of idea. And finally, the image that I'll leave up, because this will be a kind of roadmap of reality, both religious and um, physical, for us. This is the Ptolemaic universe. You'll see, see the sun is in the middle of the planetary spheres. And as you leave the Earth, which is in this sludgy, very thick matter between the moon and the Earth, as you go upward, you, it's not only higher, it's better. It's better ontologically, it's more stable, it's more beautiful, it's eternal. And when you get to this outermost sphere, it's the realm of the fixed stars where body becomes visible. And outside of this somewhere is where you begin to get into a dimension of, this is where science fiction helps me think with these ideas, a dimension of um, bodilessness and in that sense um, an even more divine realm. So with this as our roadmap of reality, I'd like to turn to the two geniuses that uh, we'll be working with very quickly um, tonight. Okay. Um, Origen and Augustine were similarly situated intellectually despite their two very different temporal and cultural contexts. Both had at their backs similar types of Christian contestants. Or, I'm sorry, Origen lived in Alexandria and there was a very vigorous church of Valentinian Christians where he was. Augustine in North Africa had as his, um, the church he grew up in as a young adult was the church of the Manichees and the Manichaean Christians in Latin antiquity were um, the late heirs of uh, Marcionite uh, types of Christians and they thought similarly to um, Valentinians and Marcionites in terms of the status of the god of the Septuagint being um, a lower Jewish god who represented an opponent of the Christian rather than um, either the pre-incarnate Christ or a god who is on uh, the side of, of the good. This is a quotation from one of Augustine's opponents giving a quick drive-through of what any right-thinking Christian would think when they encountered the Old Testament and were told that it was a book of Christian truth. Uh, the man's name is Faustus, and he says to, um, he's saying to Roman Catholic opponents, he writes a kind of rhetorical handbook, we Manichees are the enemies not of the law, but of Judaism. The character of the Jews' God is frightfully ungodlike. He was ignorant, not knowing where Adam was, he had to call out to him himself, that's Genesis 3.9, he was jealous and vengeful, as he repeatedly describes himself. He was bloodthirsty, emotionally unstable, and prone to violence. And Faustus continues, These books of the law portray a God so ignorant of the future that he gave Adam a command, not knowing that Adam would break it. Envy made him fear that a human being might eat of the tree of life and live forever. 
Later, he was greedy for the blood and fat from all kinds of sacrifices, and jealous that these were offered to anyone other than himself. At times, his enemies infuriated him. At other times, his friends. Sometimes he destroyed thousands of men over little, at other times over nothing. And he threatened to come with the sword and to spare no one, whether the righteous or the wicked. Well, so much for the claim that the biblical God is a transparent representation of um, what, what love and justice should be like. But Faustus then goes on to point to the so-called Old Testament heroes. This morally impaired deity, Faustus says, is very well matched with the patriarchs, the kings, and the prophets who people the pages of the Jews' sacred scripture. And he continues, we Manichees are not the ones who wrote that Abraham, inflamed by his frantic craving for children, did not fully trust God's promise that Sarah, his wife, would conceive. And then even more shamefully, because he did so with his wife's knowledge, he rolled around with a mistress. And later, in fact, on two different occasions, he disreputably marketed his own marriage out of avarice and greed, selling Sarah into prostitution with two different kings, Abimelech and Pharaoh. And he duplicitously claimed that his wife was his own sister because she was very beautiful. And what about Lot, Abraham's brother, that's Faustus's mistake, who lay with his own two daughters once he had escaped from Sodom? And what about Isaac, who imitated his father and passed off his wife Rebekah as his sister so that he could shamefully benefit from her? And Jacob, Isaac's son, who had four wives and who rutted around like a goat between them? And Judah, his son, who slept with his own daughter-in-law Tamar? And David, who seduced the wife of his own soldier Uriah while arranging for him to be killed in battle. And Solomon, with his 300 wives and 700 concubines. And the prophet Hosea, who married a prostitute. And what about Moses, who committed murder? Look, either these stories are false, or the crimes that they relate are real. Choose whichever option you want, because both are despicable. It was a hard sell to convince these Christians that the Old Testament was a book of positive spiritual value. But Origen took a very good shot at it. And the way that Origen lays out the meaning of the Bible and the true meaning of Christianity is to completely integrate this model of the cosmos with the way he is constructing Christianity through the double canon of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Origen begins with the assertion that spirit is primary over matter. Matter is secondary, spirit is primary, and it is an ontological priority and also a moral one. Spirit is better. The ultimate source of everything is purely spirit, namely God. And God's perfection extends to the fact, and this is the first quotation on your handout, that he is completely without a body at all. Everything that is not God has a body of some sort. Only God does not have any body whatsoever. He is without extension. He is radically transcendent in that way. Other than God, which Origen defines as a triple God, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are radically non-embodied, 
everything else that is has a body of some sort. Now, we're about to go into the matrix, so if I lose you, raise your hand, and I'll try to make it a little bit clearer. We're talking about creation before there was physical reality and creation, therefore, before there was time. Long, long ago in a galaxy far away, what Origen's saying, is that there was a completely timeless realm which consisted of the eternal God and everything else. Everything else is rational beings. These rational beings had quote-unquote spiritual bodies. The spiritual body is an idea that he distills from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And these different uh, rational beings in their bodies were the if I say creation, we'll all be thinking temporally, but they were the, the creatures. They were, they were there because God was there, and God, without effort, had generated them. So they were contingent upon God for their own existence. God didn't need them to exist, but they would not have existed had God not existed. But they each have a spiritual body, and the point of the spiritual body is that body is a medium of individuation. Otherwise, all these... I keep thinking of egg yolks when I do this. It's, otherwise, all these things would have all messed together. And the reason each rational being has to be individuated is because rational beings have free choice. It's the definition of a rational being. So these rational beings, which have free choice have spiritual bodies and are contingent upon the Godhead. The consequence of being contingent and the consequence of being not God, which is what these things are in this time before time, meant that they had a built-in tendency to change. Only God is changeless in principle Anything that is not God, anything that is contingent, will just have a tendency to alter. That's what makes it not God. And that's what happened, began to happen to these beings. That itself was not sinful. The reason it was not sinful is because these rational beings did not have a choice about it. It was in their nature as contingent existences to, to lapse. But what was culpable was the point at which they stopped themselves. Some rational beings lapsed only a little bit, relatively speaking. Some lapsed a lot. And some of them lapsed an incredible amount. And the ones that lapsed the most extremely without willing, without choosing freely to stop at all, was Satan. One rational being out of all of these spiritually embodied rational beings in a time before time, before any matter exists, loved God so fiercely that the rational being fused with the Godhead. And that rational being was the soul, the pre-existent soul of what would become Jesus Christ. Origen's point in thinking this way is to say that God is absolutely just. And God would not be just unless 
every rational being were created completely equally. There's no cheating, there's no favoring. Jesus' soul, Satan's soul, your soul, my soul, everybody's soul is created absolutely equally, but every single soul has individual will, and so there's a kind of lapsing, or in Jesus' case, clinging, that is a function of the will and therefore the virtue of the individual moral agent. As a result of this different order of uh, falling away, God, and this is a second quotation, both just and mercifully acted in order to help the redemption of his creatures because God loves his creation. He is not a perverse God. He loves his creation, and as a result of this lapsing, God basically invents time because he creates matter out of nothing. And the distribution of matter that we see that recapitulates the moral levels of these different prehistoric, prematerial, rational beings is the physical cosmos. In other words, this way of looking at contingency, free will, and virtue explains the structure of the universe. This also means that humans are not the sole interest of God when God wants to redeem his creation. The moon is a rational being. The planets and the sun are rational beings. The stars are, are persons. If we consider a person a rational being with free will. All of these different rational beings have um, different bodies that are calibrated exactly to their level of um, virtue or sinfulness. And they are placed at this very precise material circumstance, wherever they are, by an infinitely wise, infinitely just, and infinitely loving God. In other words, every single layer of this cosmos is a learning situation. God has micromanaged material reality, and why not? He's God. So that each individual soul is perfectly positioned to learn exactly what it has to learn in order to correct its moral course, turn away from non-being back toward God, freely choose to love God, and begin the ascent back up away from matter. All of the cosmos, says Origen, is ultimately going to lapse back into the nothing from which God created it, because ultimately, since God is God, all creatures are going to turn and go back to him. This is the point of the quotation from Book 2 of the Peri Archon. His rationale is given in this third quotation. Now, since the world is so very varied and it comprises so great a diversity of rational beings, what else can we assign to the cause of its existence except the diversity in the fall of those who declined from unity, which is to say God, in different ways? So this is his explanation. The entire universe is a propedeutic device to get these individual souls to understand what they did wrong. This is a completely traditionally platonic idea of the erotic component of knowledge. And to love God and want to know him means that each individual rational being, including the planets and the stars, will turn around and go back up. 
Free will, in other words, is the engine of this entire system and the prime protector of God's rationality and God's justice. On the other hand, Origen also, because he's a Christian theologian, has to take account of some very difficult passages in the New Testament that had been read for a long while as um, very supportive of Valentinian and Marcionite positions. I'm reading um, a premier case of this, which is Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 9. Paul is talking about uh, the redemption of the whole world, and he ends up doing a quick review of the way God, the God of Israel, has acted in Jewish history previously. And he says, I'm beginning in verse 6, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel, for the descendants are numbered from Isaac. And this is what the promise said, at about this time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by the same man, Isaac, though neither was yet born and neither had done anything, whether good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, she was told, the elder will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So what then shall we say? This is still Paul. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It depends not on man's will, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the purpose of showing my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You will say to me, then why does he still blame people? Who can resist his will? If God's calling all the shots of how somebody's going to act, how is it the individual person's fault? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the molded thing say to its maker, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? In other words, he says, it's God's sovereign prerogative to act in history as he sees fit because um, because he's God and the idea as Paul will continue is that God makes his choices of election in history so that um, ultimately um, he can redeem everyone which is the place where Paul will end up in Romans 11. So this is the point of quotation four on your handout he has to address this issue about how this verse in Romans sounds as if the human agent doesn't have free will. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Esau is rejected before he's even born. Um, The potter shapes clay the way the potter wants. It's not the clay that tells him what to do and so on. And therefore he defends Paul's meaning by explaining how the, the defense of God's justice and mercy requires us to understand these verses to mean exactly the opposite of what a fleshly reading might imply. In other words, Pharaoh's will was free, says Origen, or else God would not have to have hardened his heart to get Pharaoh to act bad. And the reason that Pharaoh was made to do that by God was not so that God could punish him, but because God knew that by doing that, he was going to work for the redemption of the other souls in other Egyptian bodies who were watching what was going on and um, ultimately working for the redemption of Pharaoh's soul 
as well. Verse, verse 5 gives you a sense of this, the time that God has, God's um, window of opportunity for educating these individual souls so they'll finally choose to make the right choice. God deals with souls not in view of the 50 years of our life here in the sublunar realm, but in view of the endless world. He has made our intellectual nature immortal and akin to himself. And the rational soul is not shut out from healing as if this life were the only life at all. The argument about the way that this metaphor of the lump of clay functions urges Augustine, is to, I'm sorry, Origen, is to advertise the radical egalitarianism that, uh, that God, as a principle of universal justice, adheres to. The reasons why Jacob was loved and Esau was hated lie with Jacob. Here's the great difference between how Origen's thinking and how Western European thought will construe the Bible, thanks to Augustine. Jacob, the reasons lie with Jacob before he came into the body and with Esau before he entered Rebekah's womb. In other words, souls have an entire moral history before they finally come into their historical, contingent, temporary, fleshly bodies. The reason Esau was hated before he was born was because of what Esau had done before he was born. God is morally transparent. In this way, thanks to Origen's conception of all this, there is no problem of evil. This entire system is such a radical theodicy that the problem of evil absolutely goes away. What looks like evil to us, let's say, a baby who's born with hideous congenital defects, Origen could look at with complete confidence and know that that body has really very little to do with the soul. And that body was given to that particular soul, micromanaged by God, to be the immediate physical environment within which that soul had to learn what it needed to know in order to to choose to love God and return. There is no evil. This entire, entire system is set up particularly and explicitly in order to redeem everybody, which was finally the most radical claim that um, Origen made, which is that at the end of time, everything, even Satan, will be saved. And that is because Satan just like Jesus and just like everybody else, is also God's creature. God is infinitely resourceful. He literally has all the time in the world. He throws nobody away. He loves all of his creation. And finally, he will be able to have Satan be in a learning situation such that even Satan will choose to do the right thing, turn and freely love God. The rational being component of Jesus that hooks into this non-somatic triune God of, uh, that's completely disembodied is what enables Jesus' ability to truly have real flesh. When Jesus is incarnate in contingent historical time, he truly has a body because it's God and flesh held together 
by this rational being, which is the medium that is the glue for these two extremes. So his Jesus really has a flesh. God really does create flesh. But the definition of redemption here is the idea that the soul is redeemed, the rational being is redeemed, and the rational being is given a spiritual body because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What is raised, as again Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is not a fleshly body, it's a spiritual body. And this is the way Origen squares all these circles and comes out with one of the most serene and um, morally and emotionally capacious visions of a redemption from sin of any church father um, writing in this period. Let's jump ahead to Augustine. Augustine is battling a um, Christian competition quite similar to the uh, the Valentinians whom Origen fought. He was a Manichae, in fact. He was a member of this heretical community for over a decade. And he continuously goes at the problem of the way Paul should be understood in Romans 9. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Augustine points to this image of the glue and about the choice of Jacob over Esau and uh, Pharaoh And he repeats with Paul, is there injustice with God? God forbid. But then he says that these bodies and these historical circumstances are not contingent. Flesh is not a temporary accident into which the soul has been momentarily dipped. For Augustine, even though spirit is still prior ontologically, to flesh. Both of them form a human unit. Both of them form a person. So that in the sense of the the way a person is the flesh and the soul together and not just definitive of the rational being, Augustine has to look at this particular snippet in Paul in a different way. How then does God judge between two fetuses? Right? If they those really if Esau and Jacob didn't have a life prior to their incarnation in these bodies. And Augustine says, God only knows. And only God knows. Piety demands that the believer assert that God must have had a good reason for loving Jacob and hating Esau before Adar was born, but he is the only one who knows what that reason is. The reasons are most hidden. And he says that he judges by a standard of justice that is hidden and distant from human measure. He also says, and this is because he thinks historically, the narrative of Genesis for him is not only an allegory. It is also an historical description of what two incarnate human beings, Adam and Eve, truly did. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, all humanity is rightly condemned, and that's the point of the last quotation in that first section, sinful humanity must pay a debt of punishment to the supreme divine justice. Now, obviously, it would be unjust if God, just unjust as if a human judge did the same thing, to condemn people for the crime of a distant ancestor. And this is where 
Augustine posits that each of us have had a kind of double life. We have our proximate, immediate life, our life in this body, which is truly part of our self. But we also have a distant corporate life because in some real way, we were all, the entire family, was in Adam. And for this, he'll turn to other passages of Paul and say that in Adam, everybody sinned. So it's not enough to look at that as a metaphor because of what's universal for Augustine is damnation. If Origen's God is both just and merciful to all his creatures eternally, Augustine's God is either just or merciful. He is just with the vast majority of human beings, and he is exceptionally merciful in the case of some for reasons that we can never understand. The opposite of justice is not mercy. The opposite of justice is arbitrariness. Augustine has to defend his God against an accusation of arbitrariness, and he does by saying that it would be impious to think that he was, God was being arbitrary. But from what we can see, all we have to do is assent to God's sovereign right to want to extract a just punishment. He also says, therefore, and this is the burden of the second quote from Augustine, that the will is free, but in a way that will seem almost semantic. Will is free in the sense that no, nothing forces us to sin. Nothing outside of us makes us sin. Sin is a choice, and it's a choice we freely make. But we can't to, choose to do anything but sin. If we were uh, speaking in the language of People magazine rather than um, of the Ad Simplicianum, what he's saying is drawing a distinction between will and willpower. We have completely unimpeded will. Nothing leans on us when we choose to do something, but we don't have the willpower to effectively will to do good unless God gives us, gives us this. And why does he choose to give some people this and other people not? Augustine says he doesn't know. This will grow to become eventually Augustine's doctrine of original sin. What I wanted to briefly end on is the way that this concept of sin constructs not the mega-universe, and for Augustine I should add that it isn't the entire cosmos that's redeemed, despite what Paul says in Romans 8 of all of creation groaning, awaiting the redemption of sons. These things are not spoken of as personages and rational souls, a kind of elevated sibling, the way they are for humans in origin system. What happens with Augustine is that it is humans and humans alone that are the object of the efforts at redemption. Rather than look at the universe as um, an expression of the way sin has affected everything, because for Augustine, sin is not an episode or an event. For Augustine, sin is a universal condition. 
It affects the immediate microcosm of human consciousness, and that's the point of quotation three. It affects cognition, and it marks the difference between, it's a little silly to talk like this, um, our consciousness and God's consciousness. For God, everything is eternally present. He knows everything perfectly and all at once without any kind of mediation. Our souls, as a result of Adam's sin, are distended in time, which means, this is really neat. You've been doing it the whole time and you don't even know yet. It means that to understand anything, we have to let time lapse. You don't know what my sentence will actually mean until I get all the way to the end of the sentence. And by the time I've gotten to the end of the sentence, you wouldn't know what the sentence was about unless you had in your memory what the beginning of my sentence was. And it is the memory that's the site of the kind of cognitive synthesizing that goes on so that you can wring meaning out of narrative. By narrative, I mean a phenomenon that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Not just a sentence, just a syllable, a consonant with a vowel in the middle, and we're integrating it so fast we don't realize we're even doing it. But this kind of distension is why we are in such an interpretive deep fog where we are constantly caught in a web of words and interpretation is so terribly difficult. Language is so terribly ambiguous. We have such a difficult time understanding the Bible, understanding conversation, understanding our own consciousness. And the only way we understand something, says Augustine, is retrospectively. The last two quotations are from his confessions. In book 11, when he's talking about time, he gives, uh, I won't read it because I'm running out of mine, um, he talks about how the present is the only moment that actually exists. The future is a type of non-being. It doesn't exist yet. The past is another type of non-being. It no longer exists. The only thing that truly exists is this tiny, tiny slice of reality. The only real thing that is, is the present. Think science fiction now. But the present moment itself is always infinitely divisible. It's as if time is sand running through the fingers of the soul. You can't grasp time, and yet you're stuck in it. And the reason that's the case is because of the exile into time and history that has been caused by the sin that marks the beginning of human history. So that in the only words that are unscripted uh, from the Bible that God speaks in the confessions at the, uh, at the end in book 13, this is God speaking um, in this last quotation, what is said in scripture is said by me, says God. Yet it is said to those who exist in time, like us, while time does not affect my word, which exists as my equal in eternity. And word is obviously uh, deliberately condensed to be about Christ and about the word of scripture. What you see by the Spirit's action, I also see, just as what you say by the Spirit's action, I also say. But you see in temporal sequence, and I see outside of time. You speak in temporal sequence, 
and I speak outside of time. This is the way by which Augustine has squared the circle which had given centuries of biblical theologians mental cramps if they were loyal to the definition of God granted through Paideia of a God who doesn't change at all and a creation that changes all the time. The difference between our reality and God's is this cognitive difference because of the different quality of time and our distension in time is a mark of and a consequence of our sin. What does this have to do with animal sacrifices? I'm glad you asked. I will uh, nod back to um, the quotation from the Faustin that I gave you on last night's sheet, I think. Only by blood can we be purified. Augustine has a way of thinking about time, of thinking about flesh, and about thinking about biblical narrative that can seem falsely um, familiar and comfortable to us. He really does look at the Bible as a historical narrative as well as of a huge um, allegory, whereas for origin, it's, it's a collection of symbolic structures much more than it is uh, what we think of as history. Nonetheless, Augustine insisted to Faustus that it's only by blood that we can be purified, and he looks back at the Jewish blood sacrifices, which everybody, whether they were, you know, whether they prayed in Marcion's church or Valentinus's church or Justin's church, said, yuck, the really tacky thing about Jewish piety was all those blood sacrifices. The only ones who do that are pagans. And what Augustine does is completely flip that 180 degrees. And he says that blood sacrifices, the Jewish blood sacrifices, always were the only correct way to worship God. And we know this historically because already in Genesis 4, God likes Abel's sacrifice and he doesn't like Cain's. And Abel is offering sheep. And when the blood sacrifices were given to the Jewish nation, says Augustine, it wasn't because God was trying to wean them off of idolatry, which is what a trope of orthodox scriptural argument had made for centuries. Instead, says Augustine, the Jews really were worshiping God the correct way. There was that little confusion and awkwardness about the golden calf, but they got it right after that. And all of those sacrifices were actually what God demanded. And the reasons the pagans were uh, imitating the Jews, and the pagans were the ones who were doing these secondary blood sacrifices because demons, knowing what God had in mind, once they fell, snuck over to the pagans and said, do this. So it was the pagans who were really imitating the Jews and the Jews who really got it right. Not only the Jews who were actually Christians, like Abraham, Isaac, David, and all the regular uh, usual suspects in the Old Testament, but even the Jews who did not have a clue about Christ, they also were worshiping the correct way because the God who gave the revelation to the Jews is the same God who gave the revelation of Christ to the church. It's the same God, and the blood protocols were actually what he had in mind. But the reason for that was not because God likes the blood of sheep and goats and rams, but because all of these sacrifices were historical anticipations 
of the death of the truly incarnate Christ. All of these blood sacrifices had to be ethically and religiously correct because they are historical announcements of the blood sacrifice of the truly incarnate son. If you say that the Jewish blood sacrifices are wrong, you're compromising the religious efficacy of the crucifixion and the resurrection. In other words, he says, both these animal sacrifices and now the Eucharist of the Mass are the same sacramentum, the same sacramentum, the same sacred mystery. At one phase, and it was done with animals, and at the, at the ultimate phase, it is done through the body of the Son of God. The visible signs change, but the sacramentum remains the same. What happens at the end of time for Augustine? Because Augustine does have an end of, of time the way Origen does when he says that um, the universe will collapse back into the nothing, the physical universe will collapse back. For Augustine, what will happen? And this is where he's really, I'm sorry, let's see if I can do that. There we go. Augustine has a tendency to um, paint himself into corners, get completely stuck, and then with enormous conviction and self-confidence, hurl down the roller, say, I don't know, and stomp right out over the weight, weight paint, start painting himself into a different corner. And this is what he does with um, 4th century, 5th century science when he talks about his great resolution to the problem of time and redemption um, at the end of the city of God. What happens at the end, if flesh is really who you are, if you're not your soul by yourself or your mind by yourself, but you are your flesh and your soul together, what happens at the end, says Augustine, is that it truly is a resurrection of the flesh, not just a, re- not just a spiritual body. What spiritual body means, says Augustine, is a fleshly body whose moral inclinations are now spiritual rather than fleshly. When Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not talking about flesh and blood as substantial realities. He's talking about flesh as a moral orientation. So if your flesh is oriented in a spiritual way, you get that back. I assume everybody in the room, as well as the present speaker, are among the saved. So what's going to happen to us is that we are going to go in our fleshly bodies out of the universe. And we are going to be, this is the ultimate Neoplatonist heaven, we are going to have some kind of unmediated knowledge of God. This is sort of, when you think about how flesh, this type of flesh has to stay in the realm below the moon, this is a kind of matter, antimatter juxtaposition. The body you are sitting in your chair with right now, the body you gave breakfast to, this morning, is the same body in which you are going to see God. Is it with your fleshly eye? He gets nervous about that and decides not to um, anticipate God too immediately when he's discussing this. But he is absolutely convinced that in the flesh you will get to know God without mediation. Everybody, those of you who want to know a few more details, Augustine does give them to us. Everybody is going to be raised at the age of... 33. I know this sounds very old to some of you, but 
Sounds like a good deal to me. Everybody's going to be 33. People who are overweight in this life will not be raised overweight um, in the afterlife. Amputees will get their limbs back, and everybody will be um, 30-something, physically perfected. And if you're a martyr, your wounds will be visible because they're a testament to your virtue, but they will be beautiful too. And it's literally in the flesh um, that you will see God. But there isn't going to be a lot of us saved people. The vast majority of humanity is rightly condemned. God is not arbitrary, but he's the one who makes his selections. But um, who knows, we may all see each other someplace other than New Jersey. That's the end of the lecture. Thank you very much. Um, I'm happy to take um, a few questions if there are any. I went a tiny bit over. Um, can you hear me? Uh, what, how did it come to be that the body has such a negative connotation and bad rap and the really good thing is to be non-body? I mean, um, in contrast to what well, you just said. Well, it grows said, pale and specter thin and dies. It comes in two genders. That's confusing. You need to feed it. It sleeps. Um, it distracts you. And mental, you know, intellectual... Um, uh, processes are privileged in this um, in this system. It's remember theology is not uh, something everybody is writing. It's it's the province of um, intellectuals who have gotten a very elite form of education, and intellectuals tend to uh, value intellection as the highest function of human beings, and that. That's why that's, it's got the priority. Also, um, when you use this Greek paideia and you think with um, the story in Genesis, as Philo of Alexandria does, one of the um, perfections of, the, of the, the high god of paideia is that he's non-embodied. One of the issues in Genesis is that he sounds as if that god has a body. And so one of the ways, again, of protecting, having the Jewish god not have a body to be very much like the, the god of high philosophy, is to say that humans are made in the image of God, not because God has two eyes and nose and a mouth, but the image of God in man is his mind, the highest part of the soul. So it's this ra- amazing gift we have of rational thinking that is the godlike part of our soul which distinguishes us from animals who have an anima, a soul that can move their physical body, but they can't think, supposedly. That's the other mind's problem, and I can't go there. Okay? Okay? But that's... I'm only... Wait, wait, wait. Everybody wants to hear you. You think that Origen may have gotten some of his ideas... um, uh, from Hindu scriptures, and especially since the closeness to uh, almost the way you said it, a reincarnation, although you didn't use that word, 
but the way you described his philosophy sort of leads that to be a very next step. He, he doesn't say reincarnation. In fact, souls, um, souls have an incredibly long... I mean, the, the history of the individual soul is infinite. And at a certain point, there's this lower radio frequency of the physical body that it appears in, and then it, it goes out again. It's, people speculate that there, then as, as now, Eastern wisdom had a kind of um, uh, pizzazz that Western wisdom didn't, but I, I don't really see why he would have had to have left in the Mediterranean in a cultural way to come up with this come up with this idea. He was accused of terrible things uh, when he was being condemned as a heretic, but um, Hinduism wasn't on the list. I think, I think you're, oh gosh, okay, Peter. (laughs) Could we have the mic down here, please, so everybody can hear Peter? I mean, what you seem to be telling us... Is this mic on? Yeah, it is. Okay. What you seem to be telling us also, Paula, which is absolutely fascinating, is the genius really is partly the capacity to sort of forget things. And that what seems to have really vanished out of Augustine's mind is a sense of the cosmos. He has a great sense of the beauty of the creation, but the notion that, for instance, time can be the image of eternity rather than the shocking absence of eternity, really ask, would, I'd like to push you more on that issue, that origin is plainly happy with the notion of what we would call cosmic time. That is time which is required by the order of a universe. While with Augustine it is either eternity or um, the now and then. He's he's ferociously human-centered. I mean, and so is his God. God's object is, is, I also think partly um, because of the kind of cosmic mythology of the Manichaeans, that mm-hmm. he himself was he a little was skittish about yeah. about having the cosmos be an entity that's going to be redeemed or not. But there is um, an exhausting and ferocious concentration specifically on humans as the goal and object of God's efforts. And I think that's why he's able also to get into this, um, this amazingly close uh, analysis of, of human thinking mm-hmm. that is itself... A measure of sin. It's, I mean, sin permeates everything yes. for him. Because I, I think in that sense, Augustine doesn't totally stand by himself because his own Pelagianism is mediated through Latin transla- transla- tra- translations and obviously somebody one generation, two generations before him had decided to only translate the, the less cosmic enneads of um, Plotinus. That is God and the soul. Yes. Um, 
Augustine could not read Greek. And as he is becoming a mature ecclesiastical politician and bishop, there's this pan-Mediterranean convulsion arguing about origin. Mm-hmm. And I think because Augustine couldn't really weigh in because he didn't have the Greek, he was, was not singed by that controversy, but he had very good survivor instincts. And um, there's a way in which, while he could not have been directly formulating this against origin himself, there was a kind of reaction against origin in the Latin West, which his theology is a sample of. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for your attention.